0: Isaac Morehouse, welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. I could tell you about Tamina Zahiri, who was bored in the classroom, didn't know what to do next, joined Praxis, and is now working at an amazing tech startup in Austin, Texas. I could tell you about Mitchell Earl who was about to go to law school, even though he didn't want to and did not like the idea of all that debt and all that time. Instead, he joined Praxis, and now he is working at a fast-growing financial tech startup in Charleston, South Carolina. I could tell you about Diana Zeding, who at age 17 knew she was way ahead of the game. She knew college was going to be a waste of her time. She had bigger bolder ambitions than the classroom. She joined Praxis and she got business partners fighting over her at only age 17. She's working with an amazing startup that is an international company. I could tell you about Mitchell Broderick who quit school because it wasn't fast paced enough for him. He wanted more and a year later after doing the Praxis program, He was hired on by his business partner and he made six figures as a VP of business development, six figures while most of his peers were going five or more figures in debt sitting in classrooms. I could tell you any of those stories. I could tell you that our graduates all get hired. The average income for Praxis grads is over $50,000 a year. That's after less than one year in the program, at zero net cost. I could tell you more stories or I could tell you to discover Praxis for yourself. Go to discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. The program is intense. It's not for everyone. But if you're eager and you want more than college or more than grad school, you want to work with amazing startups and small business entrepreneurs, you want to learn by doing Go to discoverpraxis.com today. Today, I am joined by Connor Boyack, and we're going to talk about a lot of things, primarily his new book, Passion Driven Education. So, Connor, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Isaac. So your new book, um, which is what prompted me to say, okay, we've got to have Connor on the show because I've been following you for a number of years and seen all the great stuff you've put out. And when I saw you post this recently on Facebook, this is coming out. And uh, the foreword is by John Taylor Gatto, which is pretty cool. That's, that's kind of a coup. He's a big name in um, you know alternative education. But this was different for you because most of your work has been focused on uh, whether teaching basic economics to young people or just the principles of liberty in public policy Um, and all the other things that you do, which we'll talk about, what made you sort of take a a bit of a turn and write this book about education? Oh,
1: good question. So, I mean, it's been a little bit of a transition in the sense that, you know, as you said, I've started very political. And then I, I have this other children's series of books called The Tuttle Twins. And so we started doing these books to teach children the principles of liberty and free markets and money and things like that. And getting into that space, I started to build a name just in like the alternative education homeschool community. So I would go out and be doing a lot of homeschooling conventions and events and things like that to evangelize this book series. And so I became, you know, a little bit, I do presentations. And so people would ask me to speak at these events where we would just be selling Tuttle Twins books. And so I created, it's been about two and a half years ago, I created a presentation all about passion-driven education because I felt it was a little bit of a unique twist. It was something new I could offer kind of the the people attending these events. And it was my own take on how my education was done, how I was approaching education with my kids. And over the past couple of years, the, the presentation I've given a number of times around the country, and it's been such a good response that I thought, you know, why not turn this into book form Um, I can go into a little bit more detail than I can, you know, in like an hour presentation. I can give some more examples and walk people through it a bit more. And the response to the content and and presentation format was so good, I wanted to turn it into book form. So it's kind of a, a gradual thing that the Tuttle Twins books led me into this. Um, and frankly, it's just, it's a new idea. I think, you know, as, as everyone likes to say, education is the key to the future, you know, and, <laughs> and we all, we all try and stake our claim in, in, in shaping what the future will be. Um, and, but I just, I know my own take my own experience and going through public school, I speak to a lot of, uh, youth and I just see how depressed they are coming out of school, how, yeah. how mind numbing the whole process is. And I had, you know, I knew all the theoretics behind it and all the, the abstract arguments, but you see the real world product of what these schools are putting out, and it just it draws people like you and I in to basically throw these people a lifesaver and say, you know, I want to help even on an individual basis. I want to help you, Tom, and I want to help you, Susie, and but then more broadly, if we can, you know, do stuff like praxis or write books or whatever, let's try and rescue a lot of these people that are going through a, a very awful
0: process. Yeah, that's one thing that. You mentioned that the, the suffering and the frustration from the people going through the education system. That's something that almost never gets brought up in discussions or debates about education reform. It's always about, well, how are the test scores or is this preparing kids for work or do they need more of this in the curriculum or more of that? Or should parents and teachers do this, that and the other thing? It's almost never acknowledged. Hold on a second whether or not whatever these outcomes are that we're deciding are important for our children's lives right. uh, whether or not they think they're important the process itself, most of them are miserable. most of them don't want to go to school most of them are bored and unhappy and they're they're not enjoying the vast majority of their day the vast majority of days of the year and uh, you know I've got a friend who said this was his realization why he ended up pulling his kids out of school and ultimately unschooling them was when he asked himself, would I do this to myself? Or if I saw a friend who worked in a job that they hated every day and wanted to quit, would I keep saying, stay there? No, right. that's like, it's mean. So I, I think kind of that empathy coming in and just saying, well, wait a minute, do kids have to hate learning? Is learning inherently something that humans hate? Right. Um, I think that's a really important starting point.
1: And yet we all know that it's not. Like all of us know that any child is naturally curious. They absorb information. They're trying to figure out how the world around them works. And yet the school system places them in in like this fake world that treats them totally arbitrarily and differently and and pushes them through that for a decade and a half and then kicks them out into the real world where they don't have sufficient experience and practical knowledge to cope. Um, And I I think what you just said um, in your comments a moment ago, I think the reason why, I should say a reason why, is because these education reformers and central planners always deal in the aggregate. It's, it's all that they can do, right? And so if they can deal with children collectively, then it becomes a matter of tweaking here, changing this outcome here, funneling people there with this new process. They're looking at this from a very utilitarian standpoint of trying to uh, supposedly at least do the most good for the most number of children. It's, it's just a collectivist aggregate treatment of education, whereas you and I know all education is individual, you can't have aggregate education. We're talking about individual people, their motives, their passions, their interests, their backgrounds, their cultures, their communities, everything else. This is all individual. And so when you treat education as individual, you begin to ask the questions much like your friend did. Well, would I want to do this? How does my child feel? How does this whole process benefit my daughter? Um, and when you begin to ask those, those very enlightening questions, the answers quickly come. And you realize that the system is built for the many, it's not built for the one.
0: So at passiondriveneducation.com, where you can go to uh, check out the book, um, there's a a section here that says, here are the five things that are discussed in the book. And they are, um, number one, what's the problem with schools? Number two, what's your goal? Uh, Number three, I need solutions. Number four, what are the alternatives? And number five, passion-driven education. I wanna ask you specifically about number two. Because this is something that, oddly enough, I think very few people actually ask themselves, mm-hmm. what is my goal for my child's education? It seems you kind of just put them in school and you don't really ask what you're hoping to get out of that. You, right. you worry about alternatives to it and you put them under scrutiny. But give me walk me through a little bit of first sort of why do you think it's so hard for parents to, to, to step back and ask what their goals are with their kids. And then once they do, what do you think starts to happen? What do you think that does to the way that we educate our kids if we do start to actually ask what our goals are?
1: This question of what is your goal, I think it's really interesting because as you noted, most parents don't really pause and ask these questions. And so as I present this material uh, to different groups around the country, I have a slide where I, I ask this question towards the beginning and I, I want parents to pause and think about it. And then I put up a list of things that are my goals as a parent so they can kind of see the direction that I'm coming at with this. And, you know, a lot of people might say, well, my goal is for my kids to get good grades and learn a lot and and get placed in college and get a good job. And I put up there something completely different. I put up words like um, innovative, compassionate, uh, entrepreneurial, um, kind-hearted, service-minded, full of integrity and honest and things like that like the things that i have a goal for as a parent for my child to be i want to focus on who they are rather than what they do Mm. Uh, because people who have a certain uh, character set they can do anything uh, that they put their mind to and they're going to be passionate about it learn and be driven and motivated Um, so these are the goals that that i have and it's funny because as i put this slide up parents will very often pull out their cell phone and and take a photo of the slide because it's so unconventional and yet common sense. And Mm -hmm. as you noted, so many parents don't pause to even consider the question. And they just, whether because of status quo or traditions of our fathers and everything, like they just put their kids in school and expect that that's what you do and my kid will turn out great. But we can't know um, where we're going to end up without knowing in what direction we're heading. You know, and, and tests don't measure these things. They're not going to measure the entrepreneurial qualities of a child. Um, and so why are we drilling information and then testing that information when it's not uh, helping us as parents pursue what our goals are? I think most parents share my goals. My These aren't radical ideas to have a, a kid who's kind and, and uh, interesting and curious. You know, we all want these characteristics for our child. We then need to, you know, therefore need to spend a certain amount of time investing in the right processes, the right uh, curriculum and content and and structure that's going to enable our children to flourish in obtaining those characteristics rather than crushing them out or completely ignoring them altogether, which too often happens in the modern education system.
0: How how long did it take you to write this book? Now, you've written how many books now,
1: eight, nine? Uh, This is number nine. I've also just finished number 10, which will be out in a few months. It's the (laughs) next Tuttle Twins book.
0: So, yeah, I mean, you, you, come, you crank these out pretty regularly. What, what was the process like for writing passion-driven education? How long did it take, and what, what's your sort of system?
1: Honestly, this one was different. Uh, past books have taken a lot longer because they involve a lot of research and a lot of time to really think through the material. This one was different because I've given this presentation so many times. That I've thought about it for years. I've tweaked and, and added in this quote and this statistic over time. And so the structure of the whole book was there. I just had to sit down and basically augment uh, what was in the slides. And I had said it so many times in person that it, it just flowed. And so it was a fun experience because I wrote this book in just a few weeks. Um, and it's I think the book is like 170 pages long or something like that. It just flew out of me. Uh, whereas before, I, I take my time and I research this and I kind of piece it all together. So I really liked it personally as an author because it I was able to to crank it out a lot more uh, quickly than in the past.
0: So let's back up into your own sort of history. Um, You said you went to public school, Mm -hmm. and before we went on the air, you mentioned that you had done, um, which I didn't know, before you were kind of a public intellectual author, uh, you know, thinker, policy guy. You were in the web development world, uh, in sort of the tech world. Walk me through a little bit maybe from, um, you know, your early education and, and early career and just give me a little of that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, rel- it's, it's the reason why I wrote Passion Driven Education. It's the reason why I started thinking about this uh, to begin with. And it's how I introduced the book. Uh, for those who pick up a copy, you're, you're going to get a little bit more insight into how this ended up in my life because it, it gives people a, a snapshot as to how this would work, and why it's important for their children's lives. So I I was like any normal kid. I went to public school, uh, didn't really like it. I was forced to learn all sorts of stuff I didn't care about. And there were a few subjects that I always uh, was very disinterested in and and did poorly in. One was history or social studies. Um, Another was English. And another was economics, which was more later in life, you know, in college primarily Hmm. when they uh, put me through those classes. But I didn't like this stuff at all. I found it boring. I found it irrelevant. Um, I, I really didn't like it, and, and did poorly in it. Well, you know, I, I share that at the outset of the book because as people begin to learn about who I am and what I do, those are the subject areas in which I'm most prolific, um, and and you know, an expert or whatever you call it. That that's the field of work that I now have and, and thrive in and love. And so I throw that out there at the beginning of the book, and I say, how is it that that happened? Why is it that the subjects I hated and, and did poorly in are now my passions? And <laughs> and the answer really is freedom. What happened for me personally is I got through college. I majored in information technology, um, which is just like computers and, and web development and everything. And I got out of school and suddenly had all of this free time. Um, you know, I had a job, I had hobbies, but by golly, with no more assignments and homework and projects and everything else, I had, like, hours every day where I could just, like, read and learn whatever I wanted, <laughs> and it took a few months to kind of find my, my interest, uh, it started out, actually, with uh, the Constitution, and so then I started researching what that was all about, I started learning about American history, um, I came a- across a guy named Ron Paul, so I started reading a lot about uh, American politics, current politics, and, and uh, public policy. That led me into economics, learning about the free market and the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. And I was just so curious about this thing, and it's like the you know the rabbit's hole. Like I just went down, and every new pathway, I just kept on going, and I loved it, and it was so interesting. And I realized there was so much. There was an abundance of information out there about which I knew nothing, and school had not exposed me to it. I was completely ignorant, and yet it was very interesting. And I had the freedom. So it was freedom plus curiosity um, and just really the time to invest in sitting there and reading and consuming information. And, and over over the years, I, you know, I was basically self-taught in all of this, and, and it was fueled by my own curiosity that that had really been just snuffed out through all of my schooling experience. So now as I'm a father of two young children I begin to think a lot more about do I want to do that to my children right do I want them to wait until they're in their mid 20s early <laughs> 20s to be able to have the time and the mental energy to focus on things that they're interested in that may not pertain to this very rigid you know curriculum that you're put through in school and and that thought honestly Isaac it terrifies me like I I see that as like parental terrorism to like you know <laughs> subject your child to that and so that got me thinking a lot about okay, well, I had to wait till my mid twenties. What type of system would that look like uh, for my children to get it early on? And then, of course, along the way, I'm reading John Taylor Gatto. I'm watching Sir Ken Robinson's TED talks. I find Logan LaPlant and others like them, you know, who are kind of talking about this this more alternative style. And and that's kind of what I've kind of packaged together, added a little uh, twist with my own experiences and and some very Particular insight about orienting education around a passion, having a very concerted way of doing it rather than just this laissez faire, you know, hey kid, you're on your own, let me know if you have any questions type of approach that that you sometimes see. Um, And thus, passion driven education was born.
0: Uh, You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the once you had the time and the freedom to really follow your curiosity how that has a snowball effect and it's so exciting. I think it it's either John Holt in one of his books or perhaps Peter Gray in his book Free to Learn talks about how cruel it is, this sort of 50-minute time blocks where if a kid's completely bored doing something and they're not gaining anything because they're not engaged, doesn't matter. You got to sit there for 50 minutes. Or even worse, if they're absolutely in the zone and they're doing a poetry assignment or something and they absolutely love it, once that bell dings, it's like too bad you got to stop right now. You have to switch to doing whatever comes next, whatever subject. You're not allowed to sort of follow that. And, and any of us who've created things or, or produced things in the workforce know that it's the opposite. When you get in that zone of sort of productivity, that flow state, like that's where your good stuff comes. It's the 80 yeah. 20 rule. You want to tap into that, not just arbitrarily, you know, cut it off with it with a timer. So, um, okay. So you said that this is a combination, you're, you're trying to create an educational framework that allows kids to sort of follow their passions, let that, let that drive them, but not completely kind of laissez-faire or hands-off. So where would this fall on the kind of continuum between like a highly structured environment and say a, a complete sort of unschooling or a Sudbury model where kids are, are, are there and they kind of just do whatever they want to?
1: I would say it's definitely like 99% unschooling. I think what what you find sometimes though is unschooling parents, Sudbury type people. You, they just are hands off and they wait for the child to initiate. And and I don't think that that good parenting involves just Lord of the Flies, you know, and letting a kid <laughs> get around to asking a question. Like as a parent myself, I think it's my natural obligation to expose my child to information and be a little bit proactive. It's it, my uh, passion-driven education is very anti-structure. It's anti-curriculum in the sense of of coercing a child to comport and conform themselves to a standard or structure. Certainly, curriculum can be useful if if you can tie it into the child's passion, as I can explain. So it's not that you know you abandon all curriculum or all prepackaged content. That stuff has good information uh, on on many occasions and, and can be useful. But what this entails is really using a child's world as the the way to communicate with them. So for example, in the book, I share how my son, uh, many people say he's obsessed with Angry Birds. Um, He plays the games, he has the plush toys, he reads the books, he watched the movie, it's all he thinks about. And many parents would treat something like this with their child, they would call it an obsession. And as I say in the book, uh, I, I think that has a very negative connotation. And it, it's almost a pejorative. It, it, it diminishes and demeans a child's uh, curiosity and interests. Instead, what passion-driven education says is, take what interests your child, what their passion is, and leverage it. Use it as the language by which you speak to your child because that is the language that they are thinking about and talking about. So rather than me teaching my uh, son about algebra, What I do instead of, you know, like 2x plus 1 equals 5, um, instead of x, I'll use like an Angry Birds character, right? And suddenly algebra becomes interesting and meaningful to him because it relates to what what he's doing. Rather than talking about scientific concepts and teaching about, you know, Sir Isaac Newton and all these things that are totally unrelated and, and probably uninteresting to him on their own. I relate scientific concepts to my son using the language of angry birds. And so when we fling a bird off of the slingshot and it hits the the structure and that comes collapsing down and crushing the pigs, we can talk about science. That's that's physics. We can talk about gravity and force and momentum and and acceleration and everything. And, And I can relate all that to him in a language he understands because it's helping him make sense of a world he's already interested in. It's not. They actually,
0: those apps actually get pretty complex with the physics. Uh, it's been a couple of years, but I recall they had a, they had like an Angry Birds space mm-hmm. where it's like the, you have like the gravitational pull of planets and all the, all, all kinds of things, making it actually really complex to, to uh, to angle things properly. That's so a, so tell me how how does this come up? Like, do you say okay now it's time to sit down and have sort of lesson time, and then in that lesson you're using Angry Birds, or is this sort of you're just kind of spontaneously trying to bring this up in a conversation. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 as you said a moment ago, right? Like the downside of, of the structure and 45-minute learning increments. And, and I tell people like the problem I have with most homeschooling families is they treat it as school in the home. You yeah. know, as if like a geographic change somehow solves all the problems inherent in schooling. So no, this idea, the, the whole idea behind passion driven education is very much like, It's a little bit more proactive unschooling. It's just exposing the child to things, speaking to them uh, in in the language of their own interests to get them interested in subject matters that they otherwise might find boring. Um, And so, no, it's not, not, hey, we're going to sit down and go through this now. It's treating a child as you would treat an adult. It's not putting Mm -hmm. them through a fake world of, okay, it's now 9 a.m. It's time for school. Let's learn this and talk about Angry Birds physics. No, it's, it's treating them as if they would learn it uh, if I were to approach you and, and talk to you about physics and, and we'd have a conversation about it, maybe go read and, and look something up online. And so it's very spontaneous, very organic, very fluid, working it into the day, treating learning like it is for you and I, 24, 7, 365, not regimented, not arbitrarily structured. So it's really trying to expose children Uh, to information in a way that that matches and is tied to their interests, but treats them um, and educates them, exposes them to information as would happen when they're 12 or 18 or 32 or or 67, rather than subjecting them to this weird creation of man um, (laughs) that is totally unique in all of human history that, as we see, is putting out very subpar results, Um, And so, again, it's it's mostly unschooling, right, that uh, you abandon all of this structure, you let the child do what they want. It just adds a little bit of a twist so that we're, we're in the early years, I kind of didn't explain this part, right? In your earlier years, I see passion-driven education. It's the language through which you talk to children about all sorts of other subjects. So you're talking to them, teaching them about English, teaching them about history, about business, about mechanics or whatever, tying it always back to the interest so that you captivate the child's curiosity and carry that through to all of these other subjects um, so that they're exposed to a lot of information because a young child doesn't know what they're going to want to do later in life. They don't know what they're going to specialize in. But later, as you especially get into the teenage years and certainly the young adult years, by that point, uh, the person, the child, has probably developed some very serious passions um, that they are definitely going to specialize in, that they want to focus on. So later in life, passion-driven education isn't leveraged to expose them to other stuff. It's merely allowing them to focus freely and fully on that passion. And so if your passion is you know, aviation, you're going to be learning physics and mechanical engineering and all of these corollary subjects, and the child is going to have the freedom and the time to do that and, and go deep. Uh, rather than forcing them, as happens in school and as happens in many homeschools, to spend their time, their teenage years, doing English assignments and doing math assignments and doing history assignments. Passion-driven education would say, no, let the child focus fully and freely on the passion, and whatever supplemental information they need, they're going to learn because they're going to be motivated to do it because they have an end goal, because they Mm -hmm. want to learn what interests them, you're not arbitrarily pushing them through these subjects so that you feel that, you know, they are well-rounded or whatever. That's going to come naturally and organically while you let the child focus on, on what interests them.
0: You know, it's funny. You, you mentioned creating sort of resource or information-rich environments so that it, it has the, the maximal potential for kids to kind of discover new passions or bump into new things. And it, it's so interesting that school is the predominant way that we think about education people which really when you think about school, it's a intentionally limited uh, like resource the, the, the information and exposure is intentionally limited. It's actually a smaller amount of resources and information than you would have if you were just out and about in the world and you'll see things like, oh make sure your kids don't miss too many days of class or they won't graduate. I don't care if you're you know working your job or on vacation with your parents or whatever and I'm thinking, all of these things, taking a trip with your parents, working in a in a restaurant, these are all much more resource-rich and information-rich environments than this cinder block classroom where you've got you know one person telling you about one subject. Like the idea of, of trying to expose our children to less information and less fewer new ideas. Which is really what happens in this in this classroom setting. It's really sad because I think you just like I didn't know that I would end up doing what I'm doing now. I didn't even know it existed for so long, and you only know that when you get a chance to go out and bump into things and experience the world.
1: I, I related a lot to what we said earlier in the conversation about aggregates and collectivism. Like imagine, well, we don't need to imagine. We have historical examples of governments. Centrally planning economies and saying, "Oh, we need to produce bread for our citizens, and so you get one kind of bread, and everyone has to eat the same bread and Yet, when you go to the supermarket in freer markets, you see like eighty types of bread and you 've got whole wheat and gluten free and rice loafs and like <laughs> everything in between and and that 's what you know the market of abundance and innovation specialization. Um, has been able to do i think that's what we need in education again treating the 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 education of an individual individually you're going to cater a lot more to what that individual's interests are as you said maybe you're tagging along with your parents maybe you're getting an apprenticeship you're doing something that pertains specifically to your interests whereas the school system it, it can't it can only deal like a factory does with very limited numbers of variables and so you get things like common core appealing to the lowest common denominator and homogenizing an entire body of students. Um, You simply can't accommodate the individualization, which which is why at the end of the day, if you're doing anything like passion-driven education, you're having to flee that system so that you can allow that child uh, the freedom to pursue what they want.
0: You know, I wonder if, as you described the way, you know, the example with your son and kind of talking through some of those things, connecting to his passions, I wonder if maybe one of the differences between uh, less valuable and more valuable versions of sort of unschooling are how much the parent is willing to learn. I've noticed with my own son, if he's really interested in something and I just say, good for you, you're free to pursue that interest in Minecraft and sort of give him the freedom, he'll do it and he'll gain from it. But I've noticed the times when I say, "Okay, I'm not really interested in Minecraft, but you know what? He is. I'm going to learn about it myself. And I'm going to read up, I'm going to watch some YouTube videos. I remember I was uh, some 10-year-old kid on YouTube. I had to press pause like every couple minutes as he explained how to download mods, <laughs> and I, like explaining it like it was the easiest thing in the world. But when, when I showed that I was willing to go out and learn about it and then say, hey, I learned how to do this. Do you want me to let's try to do this on Minecraft? Not only was it a great connection for us just in our relationship, but I think it sort of spurs him on if, if you as a parent are also willing to learn I don't know has that been an important component for you
1: that makes total sense right because you're validating the interests of the child um which i think is very motivating for them so yeah to the extent that like i'll sit down for example another one of my boys passions is star wars and so uh you know a couple months ago now i was talking about since i work in public policy i was saying oh i met with this senator it's like oh like the senator in the galactic you know republic or whatever you were like
0: yes it was exactly like senator pal <laughs> exactly
1: right <laughs> uh, and so you know i was able to relate to him and just the fact that in his case he was six at the time the fact that a six-year-old can have a very meaningful conversation with their parent is itself i think very beneficial as you said for the relationship itself but for him, it, it, it it's like almost like I think this is also important that when you are speaking to a child that you kind of crouch down or you get down at their level, right? So it's not this top, uh, top down uh, type of communication. I think it's the same thing with the content of what we're saying. If we're speaking to our children about the things that interest them, it's very validating and motivating, which is why I, I like the idea of passion driven education so much is because as you uh, approach and are involved in the education of your child, you're, you're, and I use this term, and I hope it makes sense, that you're speaking them to them in the language that they understand. You're using concepts and ideas that they're thinking about, and you're helping them take one step outside that idea and understand it and then incorporate it back into the world that they understand so that their world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so, yeah, it's been a very positive thing for our relationship and for his education. When I do invest the time to learn about these things so that I can... You know, and it, admittedly, it's hard with Angry Birds because there's like 15 games or something and like hundreds of characters. So he'll come up to me and be like, he'll have a drawing, right? So, art is one of the great things that you can do with passion driven education. So, he, he draws all sorts of Angry Birds and he's like, hey, Dad, do you know who this is? And I'm like, oh crap. I'm like, which character is this? And, and so that it, it can be hard, but I try.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, let's backing up before passion driven education. How did you go from working in the world of web development? What, what was the transition into, um, I don't know what came first. Was it Libertas Institute uh, or some of the books you started to write? Because now I don't know how you would describe yourself. I'd probably describe you as, as a, a public intellectual. Um, what was that transition like? Was, that, was there something that made you say, okay, not only do I love these ideas, but I actually want to make this my career? And what was that process like?
1: Um, I'll actually plug uh, Derek from Praxis who came out here to Utah a couple of weeks ago and, and was talking to a group we had gathered to learn about Praxis. And somebody asked, you know, hey, what can I do as I'm trying to get in my profession? And one of uh, his recommendations was to basically uh, develop content, uh, blog about it, write about it, uh, develop kind of a niche uh, in your industry, talk about what interests you. And, and that's how it was for me. As I started learning about the Constitution and history and monetary policy, I would just blog about it. And this was like 2005 and six when blogging really first took off. And so, you know, it's new and exciting. And, and so I kind of gathered a, a following, a readership. And in my case, what happened was that terrified me because my writing sucked hard. <laughs> like, it was... Uh, those archives are still there if anyone wants to go right connorboyack.com and go have Th- a look This is
0: actually this is actually a great exercise speaking of Derek this is something that he loves to do a great exercise if you're scared of launching a website or you think it has to be perfect or scared of blogging go to the the I think there's like a wayback machine you can go to and look at old websites like the the original Tim Ferris website or the right. first blogs of like Ramit Sethi or whatever there the the writing's not good the design is terrible so everybody's first stuff Sucks, and totally. it's a good uh, good reminder to, to not to take
1: it. That's how it was for me, and and I, I share this in the book. I'm like, okay, crap. People are reading my stuff; they want to <laughs> learn what I'm learning. I need to write better. No, I didn't go crack open my old you know his, my old English textbook from school and learn like the semantic structure of persuasive writing, you know, and go through ex- some formulaic exercise. No, I started like, okay, I got to read some books that are really good uh, at, at persuasive writing. And I would observe and then imitate and kind of follow their patterns and make that style my own. It wasn't this semantic exercise. It was a very fluid, organic experience that I kind of all through osmosis just kind of absorbed these abilities. And, and uh, now they're just kind of internal and, and uh, natural. And so I improved in blogging. Um, I decided to write my first book you know, that helped me to kind of network and develop a brand and a name that led to some political affiliations, organizations I worked with. um, And that then ultimately led to the Libertas Institute, which among other things, you know, we do a lot of uh, public policy. I
0: I was pronouncing it wrong. huh?
1: No, you're fine. uh, (laughs) Actually, a lot of people don't know um, Libertas is the name of the Statue of Liberty. So it's the Roman goddess of liberty. Her name is is Libertus, and uh, I
0: did not know that.
1: Yeah, so so that's that's where we got our name, and, and among other things, my job allows me to have time to research and write, and so that's why I'm probably a little bit more prolific than many. That how fast I can crank out books is because it's part of my full-time job is you know educating the public, putting a lot of this material out there um, here in Utah where we're based, but you know more broadly, things like the Tuttle Twins books that's helping young children learn about liberty. We're trying to find projects and ideas that can expose a lot of people and so it's just kind of this organic thing ever after time but you and Derek are exactly right like so many people look at people like me or you people who have kind of made something of themselves and they're further down the path and be like oh crap I, I can't do that well that's fine neither could we right you have to understand <laughs> that we're all making it up as we go along and and I you know when I speak to youth groups I say the same thing and this is very important I, I think especially for for teenagers I say guys you're very intimidated by your elders. You see all these successful people. You wonder what's going to become of your life. The greatest secret of adulthood is that we have no clue what we're doing. Right? Like I'm a web developer who's now running a very successful public policy think tank. I never went to school for this. I never had any training. You know, I'm making it up as I go along. I'm making a lot of mistakes. I'm having some successes. Same thing with you in practice. I'm sure you can attest to plenty of failures and, and learning, you know, on the fly. And, and so it's very empowering for youth to realize like, oh, yeah, okay, I can just go one step at a time and, and feel validated that way. It's, it's a very uh, freeing thing for them to realize that none of us have a clue what we're doing.
0: So what was your, what was your first book? Was that the Tunnel Twins or was that something else? My first
1: book was one called Latter-day Liberty. So being in Utah, some of your listeners may have guessed I'm Mormon. And this was in 2000. 2000- Which is why
0: you're so nice. Every Mormon I meet is really nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can I can uh, introduce you to some not so nice ones. Okay, or- I might have to
0: have you do that <laughs> so that I can
1: Re- not have this right overly rosy view. Your expectation. No, so I, um, this was 2011. Mitt Romney was running for president. And the whole conversation was, you know, Mormonism and politics. It was a really big fuss, um, as it was in the cycle before it. And so I wrote a book um, to try and advocate for why Mormons should be libertarian. I'm a very libertarian person. I believe that our faith, our theology supports a very kind of laissez-faire um, type of approach. And so that my book was an attempt to advocate for that. It was I kind of rode the coattails of, of a lot of the news coverage for Mormonism and politics. So I got some good coverage for the book. And so my first couple of books actually were for more of the Mormon audience, and then everything since then has just been general market, like the Tuttle Twins, just appealing to the masses rather than that niche group.
0: What what um, what made you say, you know, what I need to do? I need to write a children's book because that's a that's a different art form. Oh, how did that how did that happen? And was it hard?
1: It's uh, I'll answer that part first. Whether it was hard, you know, I, I write these books that a lot of time and research going into them. I try and have them be. Very informational and persuasive and and engaging and fun to read, and that takes a lot of time, but the children 's books are a weird dynamic where you know they 're very short uh, they 're like sixty pages long and illustrated and but the hard there's two hard things about that number one is um, simplifying very complex ideas down to the level of a you know five to ten year old so each of each of our books in the series I should mention is based on an original book, so like the law by Frederick Bastiat, we've taken down to a children's level. I pencil by Leonard Reed, we've taken down to a children's level. So these are very you know complex ideas, or they can be, and you have you've to got sit- one on,
0: on monetary policy, right? Yeah, a
1: creature from Jekyll Island, all about the Fed and inflation. So that part's hard. Is like how do you how do you distill this down so that a six year old understands it? And then the hard thing about that is once you've kind of distilled down the ideas in a simple way. You have to wrap it in a fun story so it's going to be engaging for kids to even read. So, so in its own way, it is pretty hard. The reason why I started is a personal one. About three years ago, I was on Amazon just trying to find books for my kids uh, that teach them about you know, free market ideas or property rights and just saying, hey, what's out there? I'd love to have these conversations with my kids, and I would love a book that would kind of facilitate that conversation, again, so I could kind of speak to them in a language that they would understand and literally, like, this isn't an embellishment. There was nothing.
0: Yeah, and um, I yeah, because I've looked several times over the years, too. And, and that's why the Tuttle Twins stuck out to me so much, because there just isn't anything. There, there's nothing.
1: And so I spent a week, like, bummed, like, oh, I really wish there would have been something. I'm like, hey, you idiot, you're a free market guy. Come on, go, you know, fill that <laughs> void. And so I partnered up with a good friend of mine who's a phenomenal artist and, and illustrator, very like-minded guy. And we said, you know what? you know, both of us were very, uh, influenced by the law by Frederick Bastiat. And we said, we have no idea if there's a market for these books. A series would be a really fun thing to do. Let's just put a book out there and see what happens. And even if it's a flop, you know, we both want that book to exist for our own children, if nobody else. So hmm. we did the book, uh, we put it out there as just a market experiment and a couple things happen. One is the book just exploded in popularity. it, it, it it was awesome. I mean, beyond our wildest expectations. So we said, okay, this is great. Let's continue with the series. There's clearly a market here. The thing that we didn't anticipate was the second uh, thing that we observed. And that is even though we designed these books for children aged like five to 10, um, and we're definitely hitting that target market and we're reaching that audience very well, there's a completely different secondary market that's opened up. And that is the parent. I would say roughly about 80% of our families that buy the books They're not libertarian. They don't really get the free market. They certainly haven't read any of these books, nor would they ever, right? If you give them, you know, The Creature from Jekyll Island or Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt, they'd roll their eyes and be like, no, I'm not interested. And they'd (laughs) pull up open Instagram and go follow, you know, whatever they're following. Um, And yet, when we give them a children's book, that allows them to have a conversation with their child. It exposes them, the parent, to these ideas in a non-threatening way. It's not intimidating, right? It's just a fun story. And so we're educating the adults almost as much as we are the kids and reaching entirely new audiences with these ideas. It has been so much fun. Their own unique challenges in in uh, writing content for kids, but
0: very rewarding to do. Hmm. So you mentioned that you have already written your 10th book. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that project, or is it still a super secret? You know, I
1: I announced it on Tom Wood's podcast, and so your listeners are the the number two uh, audience to get the secret. All right, right? we'll take it. We haven't publicly (laughs) announced it yet. So we're going to be, as I said, every book is based on a different uh, uh, original text. We're going to be basing book number five in our series on – The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek talks a lot about central planning, um, markets, cooperation, and everything. And what we're going to do is uh, our book is going to be called The Tuttle Twins and the Road to Serfdom. But serfdom, rather than being spelled with an E, is going to be spelled with a U, (laughs) serfdom. And that's going to be the name of a beach. And they're going to have to literally figure out how to get a road out to this beach called serfdom and the city folks want to use eminent domain and steal people's property and centrally plan this road and uh, and conversely, the total twins and their allies are going to figure out a more market oriented way of building a road right We as libertarians or whatever are often joking about who will build the roads. It's like the <laughs> ultimate argument we're going to address that. it's going to be a, a ton of fun. but then the kids are going to learn about central planning versus market oriented response and planning and um, really excited. So, Elijah's working on the illustrations now, and that book will probably be out in November.
0: Oh, I love it. I'm a huge fan of wordplay and puns. So, great, <laughs> great title. Thank you. Uh, t- Connor, this has been absolutely awesome. You can go to ConnorBoyack.com to find all of Connor's books and projects. Um, Libertus Institute is linked there as well. For the new book, PassionDrivenEducation.com, go there. Get a copy of it. Connor, uh, this has been a lot of fun and I wish you uh, all the, the best success.
1: You as well, Isaac. I appreciate it very much.